0: This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress and was founded and created through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this episode, Danielle and I got to talk with Dr. Laura Knoll. She's a professor of medical microbiology and immunology at the University of Wisconsin Madison, and she does some pretty awesome research involving the use of parasites. I'm going to let her introduce herself on the show, as I always do. I just want to thank everybody for listening to the podcast. We greatly appreciate it. And sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Lab Rat Chat. everybody, And welcome into this episode of Lab Rat Chat. Thank you everyone for listening wherever you are and however you may be listening to our show today. And if you haven't already checked it out, or maybe you haven't even heard about it, we did launch the official Lab Rat Chat merch store where you can go and purchase some pro-animal research gear, some pro-science gear, which also represents our show, helps us spread the word about the importance of animals in biomedical research and your purchase from the Lab Rat Chat store will directly support this show. So we agree greatly appreciate your support. And so to everyone out there who's already made purchases, we can't thank you enough. And if you want to, go ahead and post those pictures of your gear on social media, tag us in your posts. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. And if you don't have social media and you want us to represent you and the gear that you've purchased and your support of our show, just email us your photos and we can put them on social media ourselves. Um, Our email is labratchat at gmail.com. Which also just I want to remind everybody as well to go on to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, whatever it may be, and wherever you can rate and review our show. It significantly helps our viewership and helps more people find Librat Chat and listen to our important message that we have on each and every episode. So with that, on to today's episode where we have Dr. Lauren Knoll. She's a professor of medical microbiology and immunology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison And she does some pretty incredible research involving various parasites. And as we always do on the show, we'll let her introduce herself just to make sure I don't butcher her background and experiences. So without further ado, thank you, Laura, for joining us today. And if you would go ahead and discuss your background, what made you interested in science and research, and just tell us a little bit about your journey to get where you are in your career today.
1: Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, this time to uh, talk about my research and talk about my background. Um, so, I am not from a typical academic background. I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, a sod farm. Um, and neither of my parents either even graduated high school, and none of my siblings went to college. Um, so, I was the youngest and started to sort of read my sister's community college chemistry book and thought that was pretty cool. So I, and I had one counselor in high school that was like, oh, wow. Yeah. You're really smart. You should go to, um, you should go to college. You should go to community college. Um, so thank you, Mr. Brodine for, uh, convincing me to go to college. And, um, so I went to St. Olaf college and. I uh, majored in chemistry and I started doing chemistry research. I did synthetic organic chemistry research. Uh, And after a summer where I started a couple fires and burnt the hair off my (laughs) (laughs) arms and my bangs, I thought, yeah, maybe synthetic organic chemistry isn't really for me. Um, So I moved into biochemistry because I was starting to get interested in. Biology at that point. And doing biochemistry research really is what got me into science and um, Stu Hendrickson at St. Olaf College that I worked with. Um, and, And what I liked about it is I loved evolution and I loved thinking about the gray area. I mean, chemistry was either black or white. You either get your product or you don't. And if you don't get your product just because you screwed something up in the process. But biochemistry is all this regulation and you have to think about evolution. And so it was much more complex. So I really got into that. And then I decided to also add a biology major. So I double majored in biology and chemistry. And then I went to um, St. Louis uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and got my PhD in biochemistry and fatty acid metabolism. Actually, and during that time, um, my thesis lab started to collaborate with this parasitologist, Paul Englund, uh, who worked on trypanosome brucei, and that is the causative agent of African sleeping sickness. Sleeping sickness, and that really got me excited about parasites. And wow, parasites are, if you're interested in evolution and ecological niches and how things evolve together, parasites are super fascinating. They have these really complex life cycles, all this complicated developmental biology, all this host specificity and you know they're in one host and not the other and um so that really got me into parasitology and then i went from um washington university in st louis to stanford university uh where i did a postdoctoral fellowship with john boothroyd uh at stanford and um that was that was awesome john is fantastic and i learned a ton about parasitology I met the parasitology community really is a community. Everybody shares their toys and everybody's really cool um, to each other because there's so much work to do. And it's so underfunded because there are problems of people in developing countries largely. So there's not a lot of funding for them in this country. So there's just not a ton of people that work on parasites. Um, So it really does have a great community feel, uh, to the meetings. I loved it. Um, so I stayed in parasitology and, um, in 2001, I moved to the university of Wisconsin, Madison. I moved back to the Midwest. Um, um, that was intentional. I wanted, I didn't, um, love all the traffic and the expense of the Bay area. I, I was tired of that. So I wanted to come back to the Midwest where I could actually buy a house. Um, And I've been at the University of Wisconsin-Madison since 2001, love it here, Um, gone through the whole tenure process and full professor process, Um, and it's got a great... just like what I like about the parasitology community, Wisconsin has a really great um, community feel to it and, you know, low walls and everybody's very collaborative here. So it's really been a fantastic place to do very creative science. So
2: that's, that's my journey. I like to kind of double back to your point about your high school counselor. I think it's so like, I can vividly remember I had a particular college professor who stands out, who helped me in my career. And I think as long as you have one person who is helping push you, you know, it can just make a huge difference in where your career ends up.
1: Um, it it totally can. And I, and I don't want to say I just had one person because right. it was also, you know, other people in college that were like, no, you, so, cause I, cause at St. Olaf, there's no graduate students. So I started TAing and teaching classes as a sophomore. Okay. I started doing lab um, ta and then teaching review sessions for the beginning chemistry students. And I realized then I really liked teaching. And so I went to graduate school with the idea that I was going to go back to a small liberal arts college and be primarily a lecturer, but once I got into a major research institute and really got into the research, I was like, "Oh, this is awesome. This is what I gotta do.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's a a really cool story of um, start to finish just coming up from like a small town area, you know, so that's yeah.
0: Uh, I also like how you said you got interested in science from a younger age by reading a chemistry textbook. I can't say too many people probably got interested in science from reading a chemistry textbook. Chemistry textbooks were almost the death of my college career. So uh, I'm glad that I'm glad that you found it interesting and it found it and you know led you into your career and where you are today. And now we can talk to you about all your awesome research
1: yeah i think i you know to be fair i also you know growing up on a farm i spent a ton of time in the woods and at the creek and catching crawfish and you know so i was very in immersed in nature and um being out in the woods a lot so it wasn't just reading a chemistry textbook i i was you know really into nature as as a kid and outside
2: all the time Awesome. awesome that's awesome um so we know that you you know you mentioned working with a lot of various parasites. I think today we were hoping we could talk uh, a little bit specifically about Toxoplasma gondii. Um, first, if you could let me know if I actually pronounced that correctly, and then what is the parasite, and why should the public be concerned and aware?
1: Yeah, so peop- you did pronounce it correctly. People okay. <laughs> pronounce it gandhi or just Gandhi. Um, both ways are correct. I- I've heard so many damn arguments over beer. <laughs> I <I'm not sure. laughs> the right way to pronounce it. And no one has the right answer. So um, it's all good. Um, so the public should be concerned because this is um, a really, really common parasite parasite in humans um, so it is the reason that pregnant women aren't supposed to handle cats or cat litter um, and, and it's because toxoplasma has its sexual cycle restricted to the feline intestine so only cats will shed infectious uh, they're called oasis basically the infectious form in their feces and the thing that the thing that's interesting about toxo is it has this really strict defined species specificity for the cat but it will have its asexual cycle it will replicate in any warm blooded animal so it will grow wonderfully in humans so um what happens is that if a human um either gets it i mean not the humans eat cat poop, <laughs> what, more often, what more often happens is that Fluffy uh, uses, your neighbor's cat Fluffy uses your garden as a litter box, and then you don't completely wash your uh, vegetables before you eat them raw. Mm-hmm. So you get Toxoplasma from Fluffy's um feces on your vegetables. Um, but people also get it from eating undercooked meat. And that's not really stressed enough that pregnant women ha- shouldn't handle cats or cat litter, but they also should fully cook their meat because toxoplasma, um, the, the asexual cyst form is common in, in meat. So uh, everybody should fully cook their meat, especially if they're pregnant.
0: Is that all meat or just chicken or just pork? or?
1: It's, it's actually most common in pork and lamb. It's not really that common in chicken. It's somewhat in beef, but it really does well. It does super well in sheep. For some reason, um, sheep have a lot of this. It's really common in sheep. Hmm. Um, so, so cultures that eat a lot of undercooked meat, they have a really high prevalence of this parasite in their human population. Um, especially um, cultures that like make pork sausage and uh, and then taste it a little bit as they're spicing it. Um, just that little bit <laughs> is enough to get people toxoplasma, and um, so. That, that that happens. So, so it's um, common in humans from eating undercooked meat, and um, they can get it from um, cat feces. And um, what happens is that um, we ingest it, uh, the pepsin acid in our stomach digests away that cyst wall, and then the parasite... Uh, Goes into the asexual form and uh, spreads all over the body, disseminates all over the body. Um, Luckily for us, our immune system kicks in and uh, kills off that rapidly replicating form. But what happens is that um, that immune response signals the parasite to become a chronic cyst. So people. That are exposed to it probably never clear it because they've got chronic cyst stage in their muscle and in their brain tissue. Those they they go in um, long term cells, so they go in neurons and then they go in striated muscle tissue.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, I guess so. What's what's the higher risk for a pregnant woman? Um, you know? So yeah. So what happens in pregnant women is
1: that. Um, if you've never been exposed to the parasite, um, you eat undercooked meat, and you that parasite will rapidly replicate and spread all over the body. And before your immune response can kill it off, it will cross the placenta and get to the baby. Uh. So it's not harmful for the mother, but it's devastating to the fetus. And if it happens early on in, in pregnancy, it could actually cause miscarriage. OK, so that's so in Europe, where toxoplasma is much more common um, and they have better health care in most countries, they actually do pre-pregnancy screening of women. So for sure, in Germany and France, you, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, you go in and get your uh, Tighter done. So they see if you have antibodies already to the parasite. Because what happens is if you have immune response already to the parasite, um, that memory response kicks in and kills off that, that parasite before it crosses the placenta and gets the baby. So it's not as big a worry in someone that's already been exposed to it. Okay. That's why it's on the CDC's list So CDC has a list of five neglected parasitic infections that they want um, U.S. physicians and U.S. people to think about and know more about. And toxoplasma is one of them because they would really like us to have a vaccine against it for um, women that are trying to get pregnant. Mm.
0: Yeah, that would be nice for sure. And so it's something that so if someone's owned a cat their whole life that goes, you know, and maybe an indoor, outdoor cat, what's, he's probably hard to say, but what's the likelihood that they've already been exposed to it? Is it pretty prevalent in you know, our society?
1: You know, it's, it's, it's prevalent in cats that are actually hunters. Okay. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people's cats just sit their butts on the couch and they never, yeah. they never hunt anything. So, um, it's really not that common in most house cats because they really don't hunt. So if your cat's a hunter, it's probably been exposed. The other thing is is that cats, just like people, get an immune response to it. And so once they've already been exposed, they never really shed again a lot. Uh, They may shed a little bit the second time they're exposed, but they get a good immune response to it and, and they don't really shed again. So that's why it would be really awesome to have a cat vaccine as well. Yeah. So people could vaccinate their cats if they're thinking of getting pregnant.
0: Yeah, that would be great. Um, Awesome. Well, thanks for all of that important information. If you would, now that we know a little bit about, you know, toxoplasma gondii or Gandhi, if you would just tell us a little bit about your research involving this parasite and its relative importance, your research's relative importance to the public.
1: Yeah, so my lab has um, spent most of its lab career um, looking at that chronic infection. So I said those cysts um, persist in muscle tissue and brain tissue, and uh, the reason that's important is that if people become immune compromised later, so let's say I have um, cancer later, so I'm I'm toxoplasma positive. I know I have a high. IgG titer to it. And I had that done before I got pregnant. So I had a pre-pregnancy exam. And um, if I lose my immune surveillance, let's say I get cancer and I'm getting um, chemotherapy that knocks out my immune response or bone marrow transplant, something like that, um, that cyst can reactivate and then start to grow as a rapidly replicating form again. The reason that toxoplasma really got a lot of public health attention uh, was in the eighties for uh, patients that were HIV positive that uh, had AIDS, um, because those uh, in severe AIDS patients, those cysts reactivate and grow again, and they and they don't, um, and the people's immune response can't can't clear them. So. Um, so that was what my lab was largely focused on is that chronic infection because we don't have any drugs that treat that once it's in the cyst stage, we have no way to treat it. So there's no way to like give me a pill and have it clear the cysts that are in my body. If they are growing as the rapidly replicating form, we have a couple of different drugs against those. Uh, they're they're kind of toxic and they're... Uh, not very effective. So you always have to take them in combination, but we do have some drugs. Um, So we were focused on the chronic infection and then we started to really get interested in the life cycle and how do we recapitulate that entire life cycle. Um, So we started to get interested in the cat stages and that sexual development. And, you know, I've always been interested in developmental biology of why, uh, why is this restricted to the cat? Um, so we were able to figure out that, um, it's due to fatty acid metabolism. Um, so cats are, um, Missing an enzyme in their fatty acid, um, uh, fatty acid metabolism pathways, and this probably came as an evolutionary um, mechanism for them to conserve calories because uh, they grew up. They do, they didn't grow up. They evolved in the desert, and you know, a carnivore in the desert really has to conserve its calories. So um, what happens when you or I eat a fatty acid called linoleic acid, our body uh, immediately starts to metabolize that and put it in a pathway that will uh, make lipid signaling molecules and control our immune response. Um, This is why uh, ibuprofen works through this pathway. It's called um, eicosanoids, and the molecule is called arachidonic acid. Um, So cats um, don't respond. People are taught... I don't know if you've been taught this yet in vet school, that cats don't respond to ibuprofen. Hmm. Uh,
0: Uh, We've touched on it briefly.
1: Yeah, they they don't because they don't have... The the, the specific enzyme in their gut that they're missing is delta-60 saturase. So when they eat... Linoleic acid, they just leave it as linoleic acid and use it for calories instead of metabolizing it to arachidonic acid. So the parasite toxoplasma in the cat gut then sees that buildup of linoleic acid as the signal of, oh, I'm in a cat now, so I can have sex. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, the, it's probably you know metabolizing that in some ways and turn it into signaling molecules, but that basically is what happens. And so we were able to figure that out and then we were able to take it one step further because no one wants to use cats in research. We were able to inhibit the enzyme in mice and now and then give them a linoleic acid rich diet and get the sexual cycle, to occur in mice, and now the mice will poop out uh, infectious oasis just like a cat. So, so that's pretty cool.
2: That was one of my, my next questions was, um, you know, we talk about the cat being the natural uh, reservoir for this parasite. So you mentioned uh, creating a mouse model. Do you know, are there any other species that can be used for this work, or is it very specific because of the parasite's very specific preferences?
1: <laughs> no, actually, it, you know, so... It seems like every mammal except the cat has this enzyme turned on. So in cell culture, we've been able to get the early stages of sexual development to occur in cell culture in any cell where we inhibit this enzyme. So all we need to do is inhibit this enzyme, give a linoleic acid, and we can get it to happen in any mammalian cell line.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I wonder, I've always wondered, you know, just being in, I'm I'm glad you brought this topic up because I've always in vet school, we start start learning about parasites and we learn about, you know, the definitive and the intermediate hosts. So they may prefer one species, but can pass through, you know, rodents or or whatever. And I've always wondered, how does a parasite know it's in... You know like you like yeah. you're like a cat or how does a pair there's such simple organisms or they seem like such simple organisms how does it know what species of animal it's inside of to begin replication and stuff so that yeah. very, there's yeah. that, was, that was my that was you know not mind-blowing but very eye-opening to Yeah, I learned
1: it was something fascinating. It was yeah. fascinating so we were able to for one parasite figure out how it's actually sensing and what it's sensing so
0: Back to the on topic here a little bit. <laughs> I, was, I was reading your uh, research profile, and it seems like your your lab is pretty big on the use of alternatives um, to animal models out there, or at least to help you, you know, refine, reduce, and replace. We talked about the three R's a lot on the show. Yeah. Um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about the alternative methods that you guys use in your laboratories and helps and how those help you, you know, stick to and abide by the the three R principles?
1: Yeah. So. Um... We're doing some really um, awesome collaborations with um, biomedical engineers um, to make artificial intestines. So, um, and we haven't we haven't published any of this yet, but um, it's going really well. We just have to have more time to get the paper written. Um, So we can take, um, and this is mostly to model humans. We can obviously model mice as well, but what we really want to do. Is model host parasite immune response that's that's human um, because we obviously can't experimentally infect humans. So what we we can take human intestinal cells. Uh, so so basically, this device is um, two tubes, and then you put in a collagen matrix, and you pull out the glass rods, the tubes, and then you can seed human intestinal cells in one side and then the other tube gets um human blood vessel cells in the other side you let those grow up and mature takes about a week and then we can put parasites or bacteria to um simulate the bacterial microbiome we can put those in the intestinal tract and then we can get um human immune cells purified from healthy blood donors and we can put those uh, human immune cells in the blood vessel side and then we can monitor the immune response to the parasites uh, and we can monitor immune cell um, molecule production, what proteins are they making in response to the parasites and also how they traffic over to the intestine and how they, how they move because we can put uh, fluorescent markers on them so we can actually monitor their migration under a microscope. So that's, that's really awesome. And that is allowing us to recapitulate uh, human responses in uh, a little tissue culture dish.
2: Yeah, this this is cool stuff. <laughs> so s- since you kind of work in a lab that does animal research as well as um you know, looking at the alternatives, trying to find sort of benchtop cell culture type work, in the future, do you ever envision the ability for, you know, technology and biology to just replace the need for animals in research or does it still seem like that has to be a vital part of a lot of these topics that are being researched?
1: Yeah, I honestly don't see us not being able to use animals in research. And and I think, you know, let's, let's think about the COVID vaccine for a minute. Yeah. You know, so many people are, are really nervous about obtaining this vaccine. Um, and, what would happen if we hadn't tested that in a ton of animals mm-hmm. before we started doing the human clinical trials? I mean, the immune response is so complex um, because it's compartmentalized in different organs. Immune cells are made in one place and traffic to another place, the site of infection, uh, and then they traffic other places to signal we really can't recapitulate all of that in um, in a dish, um, and I, I don't think we should try to. I think we should model as much as we can, reduce as much as we can, but for drugs and for vaccines that we're going to be putting in people and putting in children, I just don't think we should ever not have tested that in animals because we can't anticipate um, all the side reactions that are going to happen mm-hmm. and I, w- I wouldn't want to put that in my kid if it hadn't been tested in an animal Yeah, and I, right. think, I think some of the people that um, don't understand the complexity of the immune response or don't understand how the side reactions that drugs can have um, that we just can't predict unless we test that in an animal
0: Right. It'd be, I mean, and like we said so many times, and as you pointed out, it's so hard to, it'd be so hard to test the effects, whether it's toxicity or efficacy or whatnot, in a simulated, you know, computer model system that's modeling physiology when we don't even completely understand the you know, physiological systems as a whole for a certain species, you know, or for any species, really. I mean, how every single cell and different organite all interact and interplay with each other. So yeah. it's very difficult, like you were saying.
1: Yeah, um, and and I think we can get better at it. I think we can, you know.
0: Yeah. And I think we're trying to. Yeah. You know, I mean, The field's trying to, and they see that. And I think it just goes back to really – The basics of the three r's you know we're trying to refine you know we're trying to reduce and trying to replace where where we can without sacrificing you know without 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 sacrificing good data and science that would put the population or whoever is going to go through clinical trials at further risk you know right
1: yes yes exactly and especially i think we've seen with covid Sometimes speed is really important. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, do you really want to mess around trying to model something in cell culture for months and months and months, trying to get it right when you know you have an animal model that would be faster? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if human lives are at stake, you have to move fast sometimes.
0: That's right. All right. So for fun... We haven't really asked this question before. I think one other episode we did, so you're um, you're one of the first here. So for fun, what's your favorite medical or scientific discovery that has come from the use of animals in research and why it can be a personal thing or maybe something that you've benefited from personally in your life or, or whatever, just something that you find interesting?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I I just looked at your questions this morning <laughs> no, no, before I got on, and I was just like, "Wow, that one really stumps
0: me." Um, yeah, there's so many. You know, but actually, so, like, that
2: question might be easier for like someone at the you know vet tech or even vet level because they deal with so many other people's projects. Um, yes, whereas, like sure. as a PI, you're kind of focused on your field. So, so you're kind of yeah. like, well, my stuff my favorite. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> yes. I think our stuff is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think um, favorite right now is just the, the speed that they were able to do the COVID vaccine. Yeah. Um, that is awesome. And that's because of animal research that they were able to get that. Uh, out into people into clinical trials so quickly.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That should be everybody's favorite scientific <laughs> <know. medical> <laughs> right now.
1: Goodness, so we all need to be yeah. and
0: get back to normalcy.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know we all uh, we all just need to get vaccinated. Oh man, I can't wait to get it. I I'm my my husband is fully vaccinated now because he's a physician. So oh, cool. uh, I'm. I can't wait till I can get vaccinated too.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I have a few family members that's starting to trickle down. My sister-in-law got her first uh, first vaccine. My grandmother uh, got her first Vaccine, so Always it's grandma did it already, huh? Yeah, it's starting to, you know, trickle down to the public, I
0: guess. Yeah. yeah. I know my in-laws, they both have appointments, I think, in the coming week or so to go get their first yeah. dose as cool. well. So more and more people.
2: I know. It feels what? like we're coming up for fresh air or something. It's, it's very exciting.
1: Yeah, no, I'm super excited about it. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so another question we've been asking all of our guests is sort of... How they describe or talk to other people about what they do for a living. If you're kind of stuck in a, well, we used to use the reference of if you're stuck on an airplane next to someone, but we (laughs) never flying anywhere. So, you know, in the past, if you were kind of, you know, making small chat with maybe someone you didn't know too well, do you bring up the animal research component? Um, sort of how do you deal with their reactions or do you kind of shy away from, um, you know, talking openly about this?
1: Oh, no, I definitely don't shy away from it at <laughs> all. I, I've been a um, a big proponent of, you know, not that I like to kill animals. I love animals. I take really good care of my animals in my lab, you know. Um, we're really respectful of them. Um, but I, I know their necessity. And I think it's also that I work on parasites which are primarily a problem in developing countries. And, and so it's easy for someone that's has the privilege of living in the United States where for the most of the time infectious diseases are not killing our children. It's really easy for us to come from this place of privilege and be, oh, no, no, we can't do animal research. But, you know, kids are dying in other countries of infectious diseases. So we have to model that in animals to be able to treat those children. So I I am totally open with people in the street. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I walk up the street <laughs> talking about animal research. But, you know. You know what I mean? Uh, the, the person sitting next to me in the airplane, I'm happy to talk to them about my research and I don't shy away at all from talking about the fact that I use animals in research. Um, cause I just think what I do in parasitology and a lot of the fields is just too, too important and we have to test it in, um, in, in animals before we put it in people. We just have to. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, I think the public understands that, and they and they wouldn't. Nobody wants to be the first person to receive some sort of experimental compound no. molecule, you know, no. without ever being in an animal ever yeah. and not knowing yeah. what, at all what it's going to do to you.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely.
0: But so, once they understand that, I think they become a little more comfortable with it. And I think some of the COVID nineteen stuff in the news and bringing attention to the animal research component of it, which we've talked about ad nauseum, kind of on the show, has has sort of helped the public realize the importance of animals and benefit the field a little bit.
1: Yeah. I've never had anybody that's been like, Oh, what you're doing is wrong. And that's really bad. I mean, like, maybe they might've thought that initially in the discussion and kept it to themselves, or maybe they felt that way at the end and they just didn't say anything to me, (laughs) but I've never had anybody go, Oh no, I, I completely disagree with you. That's not, you're doing the wrong thing.
2: You know?
0: Um, yeah,
2: yeah that's that's refreshing to hear i mean i think most i think everyone on our show that we've asked that to has had a pretty you know positive response when they do kind of explain what they do to strangers or people they don't know very well
0: yeah people in the street
2: yeah yeah uh,
1: I, I have I, had a, a, some i don't want to say difficult but difficult um Interactions with people about vaccines because I I think it's really important to vaccinate children Mm -hmm. um, against vaccine preventable diseases, Um, and I see it from the point of view of well, yes, your child has the privilege of being in a country where these aren't really a problem anymore, but um, (laughs) you don't know who is going to move into this country, and you also don't know when your kid's going to leave this country. And travel somewhere and be exposed to something. So, you know, these these are vaccine preventable diseases, and, they, and people should be vaccinated. So, I, I I have had some difficult conversations with those with a couple of people, mm-hmm. trying to convince them that um, no, the vaccine cause autism. Uh, research was all f- fabricated. And there there really isn't evidence that holds up uh, that vaccines cause autism that really is not true. And you really need to vaccinate your children. I've had some difficult conversations with them. So yeah, I've
0: yeah, been there as well. Um, so Laura, I don't want to take up too much of your day here. Um, do you have any other final statements or thoughts or you know, anything you want to talk about that we haven't already covered regarding, you know, your research, you know, the alternatives of use of animals in research or any other general topic?
1: I would say that the only other thing I, I want to add is, um, from my experience being on our campuses, IACUC. So I was on, I co-chaired our, uh, animal use committee for, in the med school for three years. Um, and, Wow. It was really eye-opening how much the vets on that committee care about every single protocol. And sometimes it drove me crazy. The amount of detail we went into every single one, but every single protocol is gone, gone over in exquisite detail and making sure the animals are treated as humanely as possible, and all the alternatives in different ways. I mean, people really do care. The people that are doing the research and the people that are the vets in charge of the research really do care about what's best for the animals. And they really do work really hard to to make it as best as they can for the animals. So that's the only other thing I guess I would add. Being on that committee was really eye-opening. It was great.
2: And I, I to that point, I think it's super critical that You know, everybody understands there are vets, lab animal vets on these committees. Every committee is required to have one. And they just pick up on things that like, even if, you know, the scientists and the non-scientists, you know, everyone's trying to find all the details that could be improved. But just having that vet knowledge, they just pick up on stuff. They're like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of that. And it's just really, it's a good, um, good background to have on that committee.
1: Oh, absolutely. Every single protocol gets assigned, you know, a researcher and a vet. Mm-hmm. of so every single protocol is gone over by a vet pre-review and then is reviewed so basically it's seen by a different vet we have four bets on so nice. two different bets see every single protocol and they are reviewed they are fully reviewed once every three years but they are right. updated and re-reviewed every year and anytime you make any change to it the whole protocol is looked over again. So yeah. it's a very, very careful process.
0: Yeah. All right. And our recording platform apparently stopped recording the last minute of the show or so. So basically, luckily, we were at the end of the episode and there was no further content or information provided from Laura in the episode. The only thing you guys missed out on are me saying to go follow us on social media. Make sure you like and rate and review our show on iTunes or wherever you can rate and review podcasts. And make sure you get out there and check out the Library Chat merch store. Buy yourself some gear, buy your friends, family some gear and help support our show and support biomedical research. So thank you everyone for listening today and we'll catch you next time. See you everyone.